We're going to read from uh, John 1, verses 29 through 51. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I saw, I saw you. Uh-oh. Lost a little bit here. 49. Um, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. This is the third week of Epiphany. It is a season in which we see Jesus Christ made manifest or made plain, made visible to the nation of Israel and also the Gentiles. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had seen in the we had mentioned that when the Magi come, these these kings, these uh, these magicians or wise men, uh, they arrive at 
uh, the home of of, the, of Jesus and his his parents, and and they are a, a representative sample of the Gentiles coming to the light of Christ. They they follow what what do they follow? They follow a star in the heavens. One of my favorite uh, uh, hymns during uh, Christmas time and Epiphany is uh, "Star of Wonder, Star of Bright, Star of uh, Royal Beauty, Bright." Westward leading, and then this is my favorite a phrase in almost any Christmas hymn, still proceeding. The light of Jesus Christ is still being made manifest to the world. The, the light which re- represented Jesus, that those uh, Gentile, belie- uh, Gentile magicians, Gentile kings, Gentile wise men followed, that light is still visible in the world and it shines forth through the church. So in this season of Epiphany, we're looking at the light being made manifest to Israel and then also to the Gentiles. We had seen a week ago that at Jesus' baptism, uh, or two weeks ago rather, at Jesus' baptism, he's revealed to the nation. The Father speaks from heaven, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, it remains on Jesus Christ, and God from heaven shouts out, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. That is what God is doing to reveal Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ in coming simultaneously reveals the heart of the Father. And we're going to look at that today. What, what Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God and the ladder uh, between heaven and earth tells us about the heart of the Father. That is God's desire to save humanity. Many people when they uh, hear the Christian gospel, they, they hear that Jesus Christ bore their sins on the cross, and then they think to themselves, well, oh, well, that means God must have been punishing him, and that means God's a wrathful, vengeful God who just wants to destroy the world. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus Christ in his person, that is what who he is in his essence, both God and man, and also his work, what he did in revealing God's heart and going to the cross, tells us that God is love. And that's what we're going to be seeing today through this uh, message. So it's, we're looking at both how Jesus is the Lamb of God and Jacob's ladder. John's testimony at the beginning of the chapter, we're going to see how John is pointing to Christ and actually sending his disciples to them. We're going to look at two test, uh, two Old Testament stories. These you've probably heard if you were in Sunday school growing up. We're going to review them really uh, quickly just to see what are these people in, in John chapter 1 talking about when they say the Lamb of God. What does that mean? Does that mean Jesus is a lamb? Yes, it does. But is he a lamb that walks around on on fours and is furry? No, that's not what what John the Baptist is saying when he says, behold the lamb of God. We're going to look at what John the Baptist is specifically invoking. He's making a particular literary allusion, a literary reference to another event in the scriptures, and we're going to look at that. We're going to look at uh, Moses's uh, prophecy that another prophet would come up after him and see how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And then we're going to look at the final two things of Nathaniel's encounter with Jesus Christ. And then finally, the, the description that Jesus makes of himself, that he is Jacob's ladder. So, uh, 
this this passage uh, comes about in a time in in first or in John one where the the baptism that Christ underwent is replayed. Remember that was uh, two weeks ago for us. Last week we had seen in Mark how Jesus goes throughout all of Israel and does deliverance and healing. He's going on this mission of mercy. Well, here we see John's testimony being replayed, and he's got a mission. When he's with his disciples, he sees the Christ at a particular point, and he says, behold the Lamb of God. And then what happens? These two disciples of John, they were studying with John, they were living with John. John was teaching them about God and how to live in righteousness. John sends them to Jesus. He says, behold the Lamb of God, and then what happens? These two disciples leave. And so John gives the testimony that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. He has two functions here. Earlier, he described Jesus as the Lamb of God to Israel, and then he baptized Jesus. But here, he's reiterating same testimony, behold the Lamb of God. And earlier in the previous uh, verse uh, time, he says, who takes away the sins of the world. Here, he sends his disciples to follow after Christ. So his mission here is to recede into the background. Remember, John the Baptist says, I must decrease and he must increase. And so John the Baptist is fading from the scene. It's exit stage left for for John the Baptist here. And he's leaving the scene and he points to Christ and he sends his disciples after them. This is what we've been seeing over and over in the Gospels, that the apostles, John the Baptist, these various faithful followers of Christ— are examples for us that we should do likewise. We should point to Jesus Christ. We should point people to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's not a Lamb of God that is just to be trifled with. He's not a Lamb of God to be scorned or ignored, but rather he has a role, and he's the only one with this this role to take away the sins of the world. What it means for Jesus Christ to take away the sins of the world is there's no one else who takes away sins, or else Jesus would only take away the sins of Israel or the sins of Rome. He takes away the sins of the world. There are no other sin eaters. There's a, there's a phrase in German uh, language that, that describes sin eating. Well, there's also some tribes. There's a, there's a story, the last sin eater. If you want a wonderful story, some, uh, some historical nonfiction, uh, you can go grab a copy of that movie. I think the book's better, but uh, there's a, a, a tribe in which they have this ritual. They know that they have sin, and so the, they put all their sin on this piece of food, and then this person who's designated that year eats the food, and that's their ritual of atonement. And it shows that every tribe, every man has in his own conscience the knowledge that sin must be removed. So Jesus Christ, according to John the Baptist, is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, not just the sins of a few people. So how is Jesus Christ, who is a man, remember he's a man, how is a man a lamb, right? He's not a physical lamb, He's not a lamb that you would get, you know, get wool from, but he's a lamb. He's the lamb of God. What does John the Baptist mean? This is a phrase that John the Baptist is intending to invoke. He's, he's trying to speak to these Hebrew-minded uh, people, these people who understand the Hebrew scriptures, and he's using a specific phrase so that a idea would be invoked in their mind. 
And that's where we come back to this story that you've probably heard in Sunday school. Maybe you haven't. We'll, we'll recover it very quickly. Abraham is, is a patriarch. He's being given a, a covenant by God, and God makes a promise to Abraham that through Abraham, all the people of the earth will be blessed. He makes that promise, and he brings Abraham into that covenant, and there is a sacrifice that Abraham prepares, yet God uh, divides and, and lights with fire. And this sacrifice makes covenant between God and Abraham. And yet, even though the covenant has been made, the covenant is still being made with Abraham. And so Abraham is told by God to take his son Isaac, who he's waited more than 100 years for, living with this promise that his children will be blessed and that his children will bless all of the world. This one particular son that God has given him, and this son he's commanded to go and take to a mountain and to sacrifice him speaking of the necessity of a true human sacrifice. And so Isaac is taken up to this mountain, and at first they have some people with them. There's some servants, there's attendants. Abraham has a posse, and they go up to this mountain. And then at some point he tells the rest of them, okay, we're going to go off by ourselves. And at this point, Isaac says, Lord, uh, you know, Abraham, where's the, he probably calls him dad, where, where is this, you know, lamb? Abraham said, Genesis 22, verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. More, I think more correctly understood as an ascension offering, something to go up. So they went both of them together. So God here, Abraham says that God is going to provide this lamb. And we understand uh, apostolically that this is God providing himself the lamb, not God providing himself a lamb. And so he is providing a lamb. This is the lamb which Abraham is commanded to put forth. So Abraham's commanded to put forth a lamb. And here John the Baptist says, this is the lamb of God. Jesus Christ is the lamb that God puts forth to take this sacrifice. The faith-filled obedience of Abraham in this, in this account actually re-solidifies and reenacts and re, uh, re-establishes the covenant. God had already made covenant in Genesis 15, and then he reiterates and remakes. And look at what happens after Abraham decides to, he's about to sacrifice Isaac, as you may remember. And then God sends an angel, the angel of the Lord, to stay his hand before he's about to kill his son. And so Abraham demonstrates that he trusts God. He honors God's word more than he honors his own uh, hope, his own, his own opinion of, of how things should work. And so Abraham trusts God, and through that, God gives him a blessing. He rewards him. Look at what happens. Verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Have you ever looked into the sky? Have you ever gone, don't do this in, in Dayton or any large city, go out into the wilderness, go camping, go to, go to Yellow Springs, and you will look up into the sky. The visible number of stars that we can see is less than 1% of all the number of stars that are in the universe. And God here is promising to Abraham that your descendants will be like the stars of the heavens and the sands of the seashore. I don't know about you, I've counted a few things in life. I've never counted the sand on even one shore, let alone all the shores on the earth. They're, they're uncountable. 
God is describing a multitude of people who, is he, who he is wishing to redeem and to bless. He's wishing to love and to bring them back from their sin and bring them back into harmony with him. This is what God is doing through Abraham. So he says, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemy, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham demonstrates the heart of the father that he would offer up and put forth his only son, the son that he loves. This is the, the substitute that's made. What happens? Isaac's not killed. They, they see a ram that's caught in the thicket or in a bush, and that ram is according to Abraham, the lamb that God provided to substitute in the place of Isaac. So this lamb here is what John is referring to. He's saying that this is the lamb which God puts forth. This is the lamb which God chooses to take the penalty. We see the heart of the father, not only through Christ's works of mercy. Remember last week, how we talked about how Jesus was going around and he was actually touching uh, these sick people. And he was, he was helping out these oppressed people, people who were filled with darkness, filled with fear, filled with anxiety. He was delivering them from demon uh, oppression. He was delivering people from the, the infirmity in their body, whether it was some form of illness or a malady of a limb or something like that. And, and Jesus is doing these works of mercy, which show us the heart of the father. But here we see John the Baptist's testimony that Jesus Christ is the lamb, which God puts forth as revealing the heart of the father, not just the work that Jesus does, but also the person who he is, that Jesus Christ would know God's will that he would be put forth as a sacrifice and yet come. That speaks to who Christ is uh, existentially, not even just what he does in the nation of Israel. Understanding Christ as the Lamb of God is to see that he's the Lamb who God puts forth, and by that we understand that this is God's heart. God wishes to have the stars of the heavens and the seashore, the sands of the seashore. He wishes to have that multitudinous group, that wonderful array of redeemed humanity, and so he makes an exchange. This is love, because without that exchange, the redeemed would never come. So Christ is not only the redemption of man, but this is not man's doing. This wasn't man's invention. We did not get together, hold a, a council and decide, let's kill Christ in order to be redeemed. This wasn't our idea. It didn't originate with us. This is God's idea. And so the false accusations against God nat God's nature, which presuppose or, or believe beforehand that God is wrathful and God's not a God of love and we must appease God, those are all pagan ideas. That's trying to appease Zeus so he doesn't hit you with a bolt of lightning. That's trying to appease Baal so that you'll have crops that year. That's not the God that Christianity advocates. The God that Christianity advocates and teaches is that God was working through Christ. And that's what we're seeing in today's reading. God reconciles the world to himself through Christ, as Paul uh, mentions in 2 Corinthians. He says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That is, what Jesus did on the cross when he took the penalty of sins, there was something that the Father was doing in him, and that that action was the redeeming of the world to himself. 
I've been trying to work out a little bit more lately, and one of the things that they say in all of the different manuals and videos that I've watched when thinking about the pr proper form is to understand the difference between your mass and the Earth's mass, and to also concentrate on the fact that you are not pushing yourself up, but think about it like pushing the world away. Now, of course that's absurd, and that is what sin is. It would be absurd for you to think that by your sin, you could push God away from you. You have merely pushed yourself from him. That's what takes place in the sin of Adam and Eve. They distance themselves from God. God's not the problem. God wants to fellowship with us, but because of our sin, we have removed ourselves from him. And because of his great mercy, he establishes a boundary so that we would not be destroyed. And yet through Christ, he has removed the sin so that the boundary could be removed and fellowship could be restored. God wants to be with us. We're not trying to appease him. So another story from the Old Covenant, there's actually going to be three, but um, we're going to look at two explicitly. When Christ enters Galilee, he encounters this guy named Philip. Uh, this, this guy is a, a Galilean. He's, he's just an a average uh, Israelite. We don't know too much about his, his home life or anything like that, but he sees this guy, Philip, and Philip probably knew who Jesus was. I mean, they lived close enough that it would have been possible for them to have met during one of the festivals in Jerusalem where everybody gets together. It's possible that Philip knew a little bit about who Jesus was or what Jesus' reputation was. But look at what happens to Philip as soon as Philip encounters Christ. He's so moved by the encounter that he sees Jesus Christ as the Messiah just in one little encounter with Jesus Christ, because Jesus is revealing himself at this time. In verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, now before we continue, I want to say that every Galilean, every Hebrew student, or every Hebrew child was taught in synagogue week in, week out. They were taught the scriptures, and they were taught of God's dealings with his people. And so Philip knew about a prophecy that we're going to look at in a minute. But what Philip says concerning Christ is amazing. He says that we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. If you've never read the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you'll notice that Jesus's name is not in there. Um, now, so what's Philip saying? We have found him who Moses wrote about in the law and also the prophets. He's saying that there was a prophecy. And Philip is probably referring to thousands of prophecies, and I, I would argue that he is. But he explicitly is at least referring to exactly one. Philip doesn't provide a specific reference. Remember, these verses that you see in, in your Bible, those are 13th century. So Philip doesn't have the convenience of dropping you a link to BibleGateway.com and, and saying, this is what I'm specifically saying. He says that Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses's prophecy. What prophecy is that? Deuteronomy 18, verses 15, 18 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses is the greatest prophet that, that Israel had ever seen at the time. He, he surpasses all of the other patriarchs in the wonders that he does, the, the various plagues that he brings on Egypt, and the, the mighty things that he does in the wilderness to make provision for Israel so that they could eat and drink, etc. And Moses here is saying that he, he sees the end of his life coming, and he gives this prophecy aided by the Holy Spirit. He says, there's going to be a prophet who the Lord raises up from among your midst. He's going to be from your brothers. 
And so that he's speaking, of course, we believe as of Christ. He says in verse 18 and 19, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. This is God speaking to Moses. Moses is recounting the story to Israel. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever does not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it. This is not a normal prophet. This is a prophet who God is sending, and that prophet is the final voice. That prophet is the final one to whom obedience must be rendered. Moses' description of the Christ as from among their brothers speaks to the importance of the incarnation. This is what we've been celebrating in Christmas and in Epiphany is that Christ is God in the flesh and he has come to be with us, but he has also taken on our likeness. That is, he took on humanity. He's not, unsympath- he's not uh, unsympathetic with our weaknesses. He understands the weakness and the limitations of the human condition. Therefore, he can be a good high priest. He knows your pain. He can relate to your suffering. And so Jesus takes on humanity for this role to demonstrate God's heart, that God wants to come near. But here's the problem. At this point in Deuteronomy, if you remember the story, if you've ever read, at this point in Deuteronomy, Israel is constantly wanting to say, we don't want to be near God. And they, they tell Moses to go up to the mountain and speak with God on the top of the mountain. And they say, we, we don't want to speak to God lest we be consumed. And so Moses goes and he, he mediates between them. But what's the great problem as we've been talking about? God wants to be with his people, and yet his people don't want to be with him. And so what happens is Christ comes to bridge the gap. Anointed under the Spirit, Christ sees Nathanael under this fig tree, And this, we know, is taking place by the Spirit because of two things. The geographic distance, which is implied by the text, is that Jesus isn't down the street and seeing Nathanael under a fig tree. There is some amount of distance. Jesus is in another place, and Philip has to go. He leaves Jesus. He comes to Nathanael. He says, we found the one who Moses is talking about. And then Nathanael is is there, and Jesus shows up. Jesus is coming to seek out some disciples. But he doesn't simply see a vision of Nathanael. He also sees Nathanael's person in such a way as he can make a judgment. He can make an evaluation. Look at the text. It says that Jesus Christ, uh, upon seeing Nathanael, he makes an observation. Nathanael, who's slow to believe at first, remember uh, Philip says that we found the Messiah, the one who Moses was speaking about, and he's from Nazareth. And and, uh, Nathanael basically says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Uh, It's kind of like if you imagine like a bad part of town and then hearing that like God had raised up a prophet from that bad part of town, like Vegas or, you know, just insert whatever decadent city you'd like. And and then Nathaniel is, so he's a little slow to believe. He's not perfect. But what does Jesus do? He then makes an evaluation. Jesus saw Nathaniel, verse 47, coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. We know that Jesus is seeing by the Spirit because he's able to make an evaluation that you couldn't make just by the natural eye. You couldn't just meet someone and decide, oh, you're an honest person and I can trust you. You can't just uh, encounter someone on the street and know that they, they're not a liar. That's, that's not in the natural skills that people have. Verse 48 Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
Jesus here is seeing by the Spirit, and this is a gift that the Holy Spirit gives to Jesus in this moment because God is wanting to, to draw some disciples to his son. And so Jesus also sees Nathanael and describes to him his heart. He reveals that he is a heart revealer. And so Nathanael hears this and he's filled with faith. After Christ encounters Nathanael, Nathanael has this revelation about Christ, and we know from Jesus' encounter with Peter in the other portion of the gospel, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood, human beings, natural thinking, didn't reveal this to you, but it was revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. We know that Nathanael is given a gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit opens Nathanael's eyes, and Nathanael sees Jesus Christ. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Nathanael his revelation is no minor revelation. He unifies these two distinct threads that run throughout the Old Covenant scriptures, that God would come and be in the midst of his people, and also that God would fulfill his promise to David that he would never lack a man to sit on the throne. So David is given this promise, but God also wishes to come and be amongst his people. And Nathaniel, in one moment, aided by the Holy Spirit, reveals to us and to all of Israel through his testimony that this person, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is both the Son of God and the Messiah who will redeem his people. This is a great unification. For us Christians who we hear these terms a lot, that may not seem like a great moment in the history of the scriptures, but if you read the scriptures, if you familiarize yourself with them, those two ideas are only veiled in reference here and there. They're, they're never concretely put as this will be answered, this, these two great problems will be answered by one person. And here Nathaniel sees Christ for who he is being given this revelation from the Father. So Nathaniel testifies of Jesus, both God the, in the flesh, Emmanuel, and also the Messiah or the Christ, the one who is anointed to sit on the throne of David. Though, though Nathaniel is accurate, Christ's per person and work go beyond what Nathaniel sees at this moment. Nathaniel sees this. He says, you are the Christ, and you are, you are the Son of God. You are the Holy One of Israel. Uh, and then, he then uh, Jesus takes that and says, do you believe only because I said to you this? He then goes on to say, you will see even greater things. The person and work of Jesus Christ cannot be summed up with mere words, and Jesus says, you are about to see some actions. And he said to them, him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What an interesting phrase, ascending and descending. Uh, this is not a uh, reference that you have to be ignorant about. This is a particular reference which Jesus is saying, and he's intending to invoke in Nathaniel's mind a particular thing. And that thing is this that he is the ladder which Jacob saw in Genesis 28. He is Bethel, the house of God. When Jacob sees this ladder and the angels of God are going up and down on that ladder, Jacob is seeing God's provision. And after that vision that Jacob has in Genesis, where he sees this ladder coming down from heaven, not up from the earth, down from heaven, angels going up and down, he then gives, uh, he then is given another promise. God re-establishes the covenant with Jacob. 
Jesus is saying that he is the one who confirms the covenant and fulfills his promise. Instead of a closed heaven over Israel, which was what they deserved for their sin, as we'll see here in just a second, Jesus is saying that there's going to be a open heaven. He says, you will see shortly in other uh, gospels, he says, you will see the heavens opened and angels ascending and descending on the son of man. In Deuteronomy 28, in the law, we see one of the curses of Israel, if they should turn away from the law and follow after their own gods and and their own desires, God says to them that uh, the heavens over your head shall be like bronze. I don't know about you, but I've never been able to pierce any metal without a tool. Uh, I've never been able to break any any metal unless it's maybe tinfoil with my hands. Here he's saying the heavens over Israel will be bronze. They won't be open, they'll be shut. Bronze is a fiery metal. It's a, it's a solid metal. And the earth under you shall be iron. This isn't a reference to football, not the gridiron. It's an iron in which you can't dig. You can't get to resources. You can't plant crops. You can't yield a harvest. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder from heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Here, the curse on Israel at the time before Christ arrives, there's a period some people call the intertestamental period in which there is no prophet from heaven. Israel had gone on so long in her sins that God had simply closed heaven and there was no revelation given to the people. Jesus says that he is the one to undo the curse and that through his public ministry, that Nathaniel would see with his own eyes as he followed Jesus Christ, that the heavens would be open and there would be angels ascending and descending. Who are angels? The book of Hebrews says that angels are God's ministers that are like flames of fire and they are given for the working of God's will so that a particular thing would be done for those who are to receive salvation. Jesus, by identifying himself as the one on whom angels are ascending and descending, identifies himself as the only gate between heaven and earth. In calling Nathanael to follow him, Christ says that he will testify shortly of the person through his ministry. The miracles and the healings that he does will be of such quality and quantity that his divinity, who he is in his person, and his future coming sacrifice will both be confirmed. I've been uh, trying to teach us over and over again that the reason we can trust Jesus Christ's message of forgiveness when he says repent and believe, and also that we can trust what he did on the cross was really for us is because he has built trust. You don't trust someone who's never built trust with you, but Jesus Christ, by fulfilling all the promises that God has made to Israel, has ultimate trust. He has infinite trust, and that trust Christianity believes is not a blind faith. It's not a unreasoning faith. It's a historically grounded faith. And so we as Christians need to be cognizant of these references and understand what Jesus is doing when he says these things. In Christ's office as a mediator between God and man, he has made peace between heaven and earth. That through his cross, which was somewhere in between earth and sky, it was raised up, that that work that he did which we still raise up today, that that was somehow redeeming the world to God and also opening a way that by which we may approach God. There is no ascending outside of Jesus Christ and there is no blessing outside of him. There is no one other than Jesus Christ through, uh, uh, by whom God sends angels into the earth. There is no other revelation or blessing outside of Christ. 
And so Christ testifies of his role as, as the mediator, which all of the apostolic teaching of the rest of the New Testament banks on. And we'll see that in just a second. That's the doctrine that Paul puts forth, and we're going to close with that and then take communion. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, in Christ, we, he's speaking to Christians, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of grace, which God lavished upon us. This wasn't your idea. You didn't invent redemptive history. God did this. God lavished this upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things both in heaven and things on the earth. That's what it means for Jesus Christ to be seen as Jacob's, Jacob's ladder. Jacob saw a vision, and that vision was Christ. This is what all of the, the New Testament apostles write concerning the patriarchs. Pa- Abraham, in faith, saw his day. David saw his day, etc., This is what it means to recognize Jesus Christ as beautiful, as glorious. He is the one who has come to make a way for us, and that by his cross, he really has opened heaven in such a way that we could obtain blessing. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would teach us everything concerning Jesus Christ in both the Old and New Testaments. We pray, Lord, that we would be like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, where you reveal everything that was written about you in Moses and the prophets. Lord, I ask that you would give us a ability to savor and truly worship from our heart, being informed through the reading of your word in our minds. Also, Lord, give us a heart that would trust you, that we wouldn't simply trust you in doubt, but rather, Lord, we would trust you in faith, in reason, in, in covenantal understanding of what you've done, how you have never broken any promise. Lord, we pray that you would give us this revelation. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.